Welcome to Leading Thinkers, a podcast about leadership in the humanities, humanities and leadership, and how studying the humanities affects leadership practices. Our host is John Esposito, Classics PhD and co-founder of Calion, a nonprofit dedicated to elevating leadership through the humanities. Welcome to another episode of Leading Thinkers, the podcast from Kellyon. Today's guest is Jay Parker. I'm Jay, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, hi, my name is uh, Dr. Jay Parker. I am a professor at the National Defense University's College of International Security Affairs in Washington, DC. And um, I ran across Jay when I was talking to Andrew Novo um, about the book that they had co-written and uh, recently, Restoring Thucydides, and a book that um, I recommend um, that seems to be aimed at multiple audiences, including classicists, ancient historians, um, international relations theorists, undergrads, and general audiences. Um, Andrew suggested um, that I talk to you, Jay, um, and focus a little bit more on the military aspect, because you have a, a great deal of experience personally and professionally and um, academically there. And so yeah. just to start off, um, can you just tell me um, like, what led you to writing this book with Andrew about Thucydides? What were you trying to accomplish in the academy and in the world outside the academy? Okay. Well, first of all, I have to start off with a uh, standard disclaimer uh, because I am an employee of the Department of Defense. And I want to make it clear that anything that I express here is my opinion and does not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of the Department of Defense or, Defense or National Defense University. Although, frankly, once I start talking, that's usually kind of glaringly obvious. Uh, as you mentioned, I have uh, military experience. I spent 26 years in uniform as an officer in the U.S. Army. And for a good chunk of the final part of my career, I was a member of the senior faculty at the U.S. Military Academy at West Point. And as part of my uh, teaching duties and responsibilities, I taught uh, the course required of all international relations majors, which at the time was one of, if not the largest undergraduate major at uh, West Point on uh, advanced international relation theory. One of the points that I wanted to convey in the teaching of this course was how ideas about international politics kind of emerge and mature and, and evolve and develop, how those become theories, how some of them uh, continue to more forward, how some of them get cast aside. Pretty hard to do that if you don't start out with Thucydides. Now, like most undergrads, I had snippets of Thucydides and, and I came admittedly to the study of the classics uh, very late and incomplete. The full immersion in Thucydides came uh, while I was a student at the US Naval War College for a year prior to uh, coming back to West Point to serve on the senior faculty. And Thucydides has been a cornerstone of the curriculum there for, uh, gosh, 50 years now. And so I was very fortunate to finally immerse myself in the whole book and realize that my understanding of the book was not really an understanding at all, and that the importance of the book was even greater than I had imagined. So I taught the book there. Uh, after I retired from the military, I taught at, among other places, Columbia and Georgetown, and uh, now teach at National Defense University. And the topic of Thucydides keeps coming up again and again. One of the things I noticed is because of this kind of shallow introduction or shallow use of Thucydides in uh, college education in the United States, for that matter, abroad, uh, 
students come to the class with a very, very thin understanding of uh, just the basics of what Thucydides said. Put aside questions of analysis and interpretation, just uh, having students understand or recognize something that was stated by Thucydides, or more often than not, something Thucydides definitely did not say was a challenge. Even more frustrating was dealing with postgraduate adults, uh, those in the policy world, journalists, and even the occasional academic who had little better understanding of Thucydides than, than the average undergrad. Now, again, I don't pretend to be an expert. My co-author, Andrew Novo, a, a classics major, reads Greek, all those things that I do not. So uh, I'm not stating that I'm an expert, but there are certain things that you get from reading the book when the, the words are on the printed page, where there are certain consistencies from translation to translation. And oh, by the way, the added benefit to, to anyone who's teaching, this is the only book Thucydides wrote. So you can't say, well, maybe it was from one of his lesser works. That frustration grew as each year went forward. The, the frustration with trying to, to ensure that, uh, that students and practitioners had a basic grasp of Thucydides and were interpreting it and uh, applying it correctly. And then I had the good fortune to meet Andrew when he joined the faculty. We realized we shared this frustration. I realized I was not alone. No, the fact that I am a political scientist who basically focused most of my career on just general national security issues or on East Asia did not disqualify me from being angry about how Thucydides was misused. And, and in a sense, talking to Andrew validated that at least on this point, I was not crazy. And then thanks to a discussion with our uh, brilliant and very supportive editor at Cambria Press, Jeffrey Byrne, we realized there might be a book in this. And so uh, we did the usual route, uh, talked about it, argued about it, griped about it, did a few conference papers, got some very good feedback, and then started off with the manuscript, and, uh, and here we are. So it's interesting, you mentioned something that we actually didn't talk about in our pre-conversation, so I hope it's mm -hmm. okay if I follow up on that. Um, you mentioned sure. uh, East Asian contexts mm -hmm. for security and international relations. Mm -hmm. um, in, in some of the modern popular like IR discourse um, that you see just reading something like national interest, whatever, the concept mm -hmm. of the so-called Thucydides trap is applied yeah. <laughs> to America and China as it was applied to America and right. Russia. Right. And this is something that, as I understand it, is uh, supposed to be fairly new for the region outside of Japan, because China mm -hmm. is actually had been original hegemon for so long. Mm -hmm. um, as perhaps, however, Persia was in the context of the western part of Eurasia. Yeah. Do you want to just talk about, is it an appropriate conversation at all to talk about Thucydides trap in America and China? And um, if you want to make push a little harder, which is less appropriate or which is more appropriate, America-China or America-Soviet Union? Boy, there's a lot of stuff to unpack there. I will say that the writings on the Thucydides trip uh, Thucydides trap, excuse me, was what finally pushed Andrew and I over the edge into writing. It was like, that's it. This can't possibly get any more absurd. We've got to write this book. The, the problems with the Thucydides trap as it's presented are, are several fold. First of all, in my reading and in Andrew's interpretation and in discussions with many other individuals who know and ha have read 
Thucydides countless times and countless translations. There is no Thucydides trap. It, it's a construction that was made as a way of sort of shorthanding, uh, creating a bumper sticker uh, to take a very complex problem and get people to say, oh yeah, I remember something about Thucydides. Uh, okay, credibility uses the name of a, of a famous dead Greek guy. Uh, we'll, we'll go with that theory. It has significant problems because, of course, in the way it's usually applied, it's actually my take on Thucydides and, and Andrews as well is that you've got it exactly backwards. The idea that, you know, war was inevitable because of the, uh, uh, the rise of Athenian power, et cetera, et cetera. Well, no, that's exactly the opposite of how power was uh, distributed and power that mattered and power that could be applied. The opposite of the way it actually was at the time of the Peloponnesian War. It completely ignores in many ways uh, and at least understates the critical role of other city-states, uh, Corinth, Crisera, just name just about any one of them, uh, and the role that they played in uh, laying the groundwork and, and pushing along uh, this clash. But fast forward to uh, East Asia. One of the problems of how international relations theory is rather sloppily applied uh, to East Asia is certain concepts that are almost bedrock to Western international relations theory, like, for example, balance of power, don't actually play out the same way in East Asia. The role of China as a hegemon and a dominant cultural force in East Asia is very different than the struggles over hegemony between, say, France and Germany and, uh, and Britain. So it, it, it's not a one-for-one one, uh, swap. You can't take the, the dynamics of East Asian politics, how they've evolved, how they exist now, both state to state and within the states, and say, not only does this apply to an imperfect analogy I'm going to make uh, about something that happened uh, 2,500 years ago, it also... Uh, stretches uh, beyond recognition uh, the real foundations of how state-to-state -state politics work in that part of the world and the way a state like China views its relationship to uh, powers outside of Asia, specifically now, of course, uh, to the United States, because that's how the Thucydides trap is, uh, is sort of written. But uh, this is an old problem. Uh, the, the imperfect analogies between the Peloponnesian War and the Cold War. Are there things about the Peloponnesian War that do and should spark uh, careful thought and consideration? Certainly. But it is, a, is it a perfect matchup? No, not, not at all. Uh, there was a long period of time where in the United States, particularly in the military and national strategy community, the Peloponnesian War was seen as an analogy for uh, the Vietnam War, particularly the Sicilian campaign, but the, but the whole uh, sweep of the war and uh, the domestic political dimensions of it were seen as, a, as sort of a matchup. In fact, that was the way it was initially taught at the Naval War College when Thucydides was put into the curriculum in the early 1970s as a way to allow the students and faculty to talk about Vietnam without actually talking about Vietnam. As you might imagine, you have a student body uh, who had just come from 
in many cases, multiple tours in Vietnam. Uh, you had students and faculty who, uh, to include the president of uh, Naval War College, Admiral Stockdale, uh, who had been prisoners of war in, uh, in North Vietnam. So bringing up the actual uh, political dimensions and larger strategic questions about uh, Vietnam was an emotional, it was a difficult hurdle to cross. Add to that the fact that most of what was being written at the time was being written on incomplete information uh, with a very specific pre-conclusion uh, or agenda. There was no distance from what it was you were studying. Admiral Stockdale and uh, the uh, the other leaders, most notably Admiral Stansfield Turner, who was later director of the CIA, had the good fortune to have a couple of classicists on their faculty who said, uh, we think we have a book that may help you broach this topic. Now, again, there, there are ways in which Thucydides can help bring out issues and give you a start point for discussion. The problem is not, in my view, using Thucydides as a start point to discuss these issues. The problem comes when you make it a template. When you say the question is already settled, look at Thucydides, there is the answer. I, I prefer to say, look at Thucydides, there are the questions. It, you know, Many people are familiar with my favorite quote from individuals dying words, uh, Gertrude Stein, who as she lay dying in the American hospital, in, uh, in France, looked around at her assembled soon-to-be mourners and said, in a phrase that is pretty common in the, the dying word canon, uh, what is the answer? And everybody kind of looked at each other, shuffled their feet, didn't really have anything to say. And so hearing silence, Gertrude Stein said, well, in that case, what is the question? And then died. I use that as a reminder to students constantly that in education, what we should be looking for is ways to uh, discern the, pro the right questions and to, to properly shape the, uh, the, the questions that you should be addressing. The, you know, the old Einstein quote, if I knew the world was going to end in an hour, I'd spend 55 minutes defining the problem, and then I could spend five minutes coming up with a solution. So it is with Thucydides. Thucydides' real value that I've grown to appreciate even more uh, in all the years that I've taught it is it helps you to frame and ask the right kinds of questions. But it, it, it should not be taken as the absolute final answer. And therein lies the, the fault with the way how much of Thucydides is taught and how much of Thucydides is imperfectly applied uh, in, uh, say, punditry and uh, journalism and in uh, proper history. Uh, in, the, in the course of a book, we cite many, many examples, some surprisingly close uh, to what you would hope people would get from Thucydides. Uh, Bob Dylan, for example, in his uh, autobiography has uh, just a beautiful passage about stumbling across Thucydides while he's couch surfing in an apartment in the West Village back in the early days of his career and being struck by it. Uh, but there are also things like the Thucydides trap. There's the, the misquote of Thucydides in Wonder Woman, uh, an otherwise good movie, in my view. The first one. There, uh, the first one, yeah. The the quote that again and again and again and again is attributed to Thucydides, 
you know, the nation that insists on making a broad demarcation between the thinking man and the fighting man will have its uh, thinking done by cowards and its fighting done by fools, uh, was actually said by Sir Francis Butler in Britain in the 1880s. But uh, how many times have you seen it attributed to Thucydides? The uh, House Armed Services Committee about a decade ago uh, did a massive, very important study on the state of professional military education. And it was important because it talked about education rather than training, uh, the idea of critical thinking rather than mechanical learning. And unfortunately, the very first page is this quote from this British general. And at the bottom, it says, dash Thucydides. Uh, I've had arguments with provosts and deans at various schools who have used this in their mission statements. Fortunately, people are starting to come around, but I guarantee you, if you Google that quote, you're going to get a lot of, uh, of hits that will say Thucydides. That's a really long way of saying, why did we write this book and what is it that we're trying to convey? Well, something you mentioned there that um, is kind of more humanities-ish than the like, strategic question I asked you uh, struck me. And that is um, the tendency that people have to treat Thucydides as if he provides the pat answer. Yeah. And I know this is sort of cliche, but... Um, as a humanities educator, one thing that really strikes me um, when I, in one of my larger classes, I go around to the small discussion groups and kind of interact with them and watch what they're doing. And in a class like a myth class, let's say, it's um, the topic is always on something that's quite relatable. What really strikes me is that you can, I, I don't think this is an exaggeration to say that I can see in my students' eyes when they switch from what is the answer to let me really engage with this. Because yeah. what is the answer to the question of you know, mortality, let's say? <laughs> Um, yeah. Raised in the Iliad, for example, that's a ridiculous thing. But they think that they're supposed to be say X because I'm the teacher, and X is what they're going to get tested on. Right, right. Um, and then, of course, in their real lives, they don't do that. So as soon as you can get them to start thinking about real life, it completely shifts. They start actually yeah. thinking creatively and imaginatively. And I agree that Thucydides is uh, even in classics, he's often taken as having sort of a final word on a specific figure, on let's say Pericles mm -hmm. or Alcibiades or something like that. Right. Uh, which he doesn't intend at all. And uh, the difference between there's an answer, a pat answer that I'm going to find, and I have to solve this problem for myself, although that's a problem that we in humanities tend to push, it seems to me that's not a problem that only humanities scholars need to get out of their majors. It's actually yeah. especially a problem for leaders. In my experience, it's a problem in technical work uh, as, a, yeah. as a programmer. Programmers think creatively. They don't just try to look for the right answer. There's many solutions. Right. Right. It's a problem. I mean, I'm by by training and by profession, a social scientist, but it is a huge problem in the social sciences. So absolutely correct. As I say, my, my PhD is in political science, but my preferred methodology is uh, historiographies, archival research as a foundation for for case studies. I'm not a quantitative analyst. Nothing wrong with that. Glad there are people who will crunch those numbers, but that's not what I prefer and do. And, and I've also, over the years, tried to, I think kind of unconsciously at first, tried to teach social sciences with more of a humanities approach, uh, where uh, you get the dimensions of human frailty, of chance, of the important, uh, as you and I said in an earlier conversation, as you pointed out, the importance of getting the, the full narrative rather than just the in-state principles where you're getting the, the fuller context, which again is why uh, Thucydides in particular is so useful. But for a number of years, I've taught a seminar on uh, film and politics 
In, in fact, I surprised myself a few years ago updating my CV and discovered I had actually taught that course more than I taught theories of international relations or intro to, to uh, security studies. And I taught that course largely to students of social sciences, but also uh, some historian undergrads and others. And it was a very nice uh, sort of prism through which uh, you could go back and look at these large, thorny uh, political science questions, social science issues, but but do so with an appreciation for what humanities can bring to those studies. Which is what? Um, say again? Which is what in your view? Uh, well, as the word implies, the, the humanity of it. Uh, the idea that a leader uh, can have all those qualities that we endorse and glorify in a leader and do all those things we would hope a leader would do, but they are still subject to uh, the emotions, the interpretations, uh, the fears, the hopes, the aspirations of others who implement those guidances or the, that, uh, that leadership, who must give legitimacy to the leadership, that the leader themselves is subject to these human failings and that there are certain things that are beyond your control. Uh, you can be Pericles and you can be hailed for centuries as the sort of the great founding father of the modern ideals of a, of a democratic state. And you can have a vision or a strategy that at least in the beginning seemed to be responsive to the problem. And then along comes a plague and you're not there anymore. And there are other individuals who are interpreting or corrupting what it was you laid out as certain strategic ideas and principles. And then, oh, by the way, over time, as the circumstance and the situation changes, those principles, some of which people are still clinging to just because Pericles, the leader, said them, no longer apply, uh, should have been adapted and should have evolved and, and should have sh shifted. And in one interpretation, part of his strategy was pulling everybody back inside the walls of Athens, which, oh, by the way, uh, in a pandemic is not a good thing. Uh, so from, from that standpoint, it's an important lesson for, for leaders to bear in mind, to, to kind of jump to a later uh, strategist and, uh, and thinker on these points, who is equally, as one of his critics said, overquoted and underread. Uh, Clausewitz talks about the competing characters of the military, of the government, and of the population of the people. Well, part of the aspects of the military are uh, minimalization of risk, uh, accounting for and dealing with every possible risk or contingency that you can identify, and ensuring that you have recognized them and that you've thought through the steps needed to confront them, that you've thought through some of the second and third order effects. But again, to go back to our original point, the purpose of doing that is not because you're ever going to get to 100%. You're going to uh, maybe be able to identify, recognize, and prepare for a very high percentage of risk. Let's say 95%, which is extreme. 95% in any grading scale that I know is an A. The problem is uh, in the world of national security, that other 5% can get you killed. 
it can mean the end of your nation's aspiration or its existence as a political entity. It can mean the, uh, the, the destruction uh, or at least the corruption of the values and the beliefs on which your state or your society rest. So the, the, the idea for leaders is, yes, you must be diligent in looking for ways to understand your current strategic circumstance, uh, whether you're talking about strategy in the military sense, in the business sense, in the nonprofit sense, whatever, and, uh, and recognizing and understanding what those risks and dangers and challenges are. Uh, but you have to realize there's a point at which whatever roadmap you build for yourself out of these principles is going to end. The road's going to run out. You are hopefully still going to have some understandings and still have some fundamental uh, concepts and principles that allow you to react and respond to those things that, um, that you never saw coming. The, one of the reasons why we study history is because of the history coming that we couldn't possibly know. Uh, General Norman Schwarzkopf, after the first Gulf War, came back to West Point and, and spoke to the Corps of Cadets. And I, I was there when he gave the speech. And he talked about kind of preparing for future leadership. And he pointed out that he, when he graduated, and I think it was the class of 1956, no one was talking about Vietnam or even Southeast Asia in general. Uh, they were talking about a Russian threat in Europe. Uh, they were talking about some potential threats in other parts of the world. But no one was thinking and writing and studying and preparing for a, a long, drawn-out land war in East Asia. That doesn't mean that all the, the history that he studied and the, the philosophy that he was required to learn and the literature that he studied, uh, because West Point did then and still to a large degree now, has that kind of core curriculum where if you're a poetry major, you got to choose an engineering minor and you're going to have a minor in mathematics no matter what major you choose. And if you're an engineering major, you also have to uh, take the same poetry class and the same philosophy class and the same classes in history uh, that the, the history majors, the philosophy majors and the poetry majors choose. So by having that mix of the humanities and uh, the, the so-called hard sciences uh, and the squishy social sciences that are in between, you have the tools that help you meet new challenges and think, what's the question that, that I'm being challenged with here? And what are ways to think through possible solutions? I can't think of a better tool, a better qualification for a leader to have than the ability to do just that. Now, you've made um, a bunch of really interesting points there, but there's one I'd like to press on that struck me again, which was um, 95 is an A. This, this idea that you're getting graded on something you do in reality as yeah. opposed to just realities responding to you. Again, for me, going back and forth between um, academic and, and business or tech contexts, engineering kind of contexts, the most frustrating thing, it's actually much more frustrating when I see that in non-students. For a student, I understand that the grade actually does matter to you. It affects what's going to happen to you in the rest of your life. But I, see, I do see many people, even engineers who think, tends to be like junior engineers who think that, well, did I do a good job? It's up to you to decide that. Like, it's not up to me to decide it. Look at how many cycles this ran. Look at how, the heap size. Like, this isn't a question you can answer. But in the context of engineering, I feel like it's easier to blame someone for thinking 
Yeah. Right? Because you can get feedback very easily. You can look at the complexity of your algorithm. But in other contexts that are not engineering, where does right. that feedback that you want from a grader, but there's no grader, come right. from? How do you get better at that? Right, right. The, and this gets into the questions of uh, pedagogy, and I could talk well into the night and into the next morning on this point. One of the things that I that I think that I hope has evolved and matured over the uh, three decades that I've been teaching is a better understanding of what testing or more rightly assessment actually means. One of the things that I, like I'm sure many other professors do, uh, try to assure my students of on the on the first lesson, uh, and, and sometimes they're still skeptical at the last lesson, is that uh, I am not lift, looking to them to give me the, the perfect feedback. Yes, if you're going to cite Thucydides and Church Thucydides and not Clausewitz or a, a 19th century British author. Uh, yes, if you're going to talk about geographic factors that impinge on, uh, the say, the strategic choices of Poland, don't talk about its terrain uh, and mistake it for the Swiss Alps. But the larger conclusions, the critical thinking that, that you want to develop as a student and that I want to see uh, as a professor come from more broader open-ended kinds of things. I am going to ask questions of students that I don't necessarily have the answer for. And even if I think I have the answer, I'm going to have to force myself sometimes to remain open to that student who inevitably, there's at least one or two every semester who say, okay, but what about this? And you find yourself going, well, obviously it's, well, maybe it's not that. And that trying to get into my head and think of what the perfect answer is, is the greatest waste of time that a student can, can engage in. And so we have to kind of build our, our final assessments, our, our writing projects, uh, much like the, the kind of experimental projects and the, and the designing and actually building projects that engineering students go through uh, in a way that causes them to go, okay, everything doesn't match up perfectly. How do I balance out uh, the second best options and choices to come up with the optimal bridge or highway or, uh, or building? Uh, because if I try to slam together all the first best choices, uh, it, it's going to collapse or it's never going to rise off the ground. That's a really good point about um, the harmonization being of any actual product being more important than the grade, let's say, of each of the individual components. <coughs> I do want to, and that reminds me actually of Persian vocabulary of uh, the Persian kings, the Achaemenid kings said that they're, they were warriors for the truth, but the word they used for truth was arda, which is from a root that means to fit together. So for them, the oh. thing that made a legitimate king of the world actually was to Interesting. fit together. Yeah. But I do wanna ask again, to push a little bit back. I, I, am, I agree that it's important for the, um, that it's silly for the student to try to guess what the, leader, what the teacher's mind is. And that, that habit is a terrible habit for any kind of leadership position because there's no teacher's mind to imitate, but and I like to erase myself and think of myself as, you know, me and the student as two of the, um, the two edges of the base of a triangle pointing to the vertex, which is the thing studied. Mm -hmm. But there is, to some extent, it makes sense, I think, for a learner to try to imitate or to get inside the head of the expert, not necessarily the teacher, but the expert. Okay. There's a bit of, 
negotiation of that, I think, in, in like an artistic negotiation of that as a teacher, and in my experience as like a middle manager, this was an issue too. Um, mm -hmm. I people like who reported to me wanted to think how I thought, and I just thought, well, that's not really your job. And also, I have a lot of years of experience, and you're not going to be able to do that. But then I realized maybe I'm doing them a little bit of a disservice. So I guess talk a little bit about that. Uh, sorry, finally, and how, when that where that relates to assessment is, as a leader, you you do have to judge your students' brains a little bit, I think, or, or your employees' brains or your reports' yeah, brains. You sure. have to get inside their heads and know what they're capable of right now versus what's right. So right. that negotiation of teacher and learner or leader and follower getting inside each other's heads, to me, is very tricky. I wonder if you could comment on that a little bit. Yeah, there are a lot of elements uh, to unpack with that. And there are a lot of correlations between being someone who is responding to a leader with aspirations of becoming a leader yourself and being a student responding to a teacher. Part of it is that idea of, okay, how, how, how do you go about the process of thinking? What can I learn about thinking and about approaching new ideas and approaching challenges from the way you approach it? Yeah, that's important. Uh, what I would hope is that students don't draw it only from me and that students draw it in a way that is not meant to be an echo of me, uh, but to give them a foundation to kind of adapt from whatever point they, they start with. The, the ability to, to do that, and again, to come back to this idea of what's the value of humanities, I believe is the importance of a, a very uh, clear, objective uh, self-awareness of uh, what are my limits? What are my biases? What are my fears? What are my uh, aspirations, be they noble or otherwise? And what role does all that play in the choices that I make as a leader? What role does that play in the directions, uh, the guidance, in some cases, the, the flat out non-negotiable orders that I give to my subordinates? And that's something you have to come to terms with and constantly refresh and constantly be attuned to over the course of your time as a leader. I've been a leader in lots of different situations, not just in, in repeated leadership positions in the military, but in academia, in uh, nonprofits, in, uh, in uh, political uh, campaigns, in a host of different social and, uh, and community settings. I've had situations where I've achieved things and I've been successful. And I've also had times when I failed. And sometimes that failure was because of things that in retrospect, I should have been much more aware of, starting with an awareness of myself and then with an awareness of how that self fits into uh, the context of where you are at the time. Sometimes there were circumstances that were completely beyond my control. And the real test and challenge of a leader was, okay, that didn't work. It failed. What are you going to do now? Uh, how are you going to adapt and, and move on? And more importantly, since the responsibility is on your shoulders, how are you going to bring the organization, the people in that organization, uh, to a point where they can move forward? where they don't get crushed by whatever the defeat or the failure has to, uh, has to be. You're not going to get those answers out of a, out of a template. I don't believe you're going to get those data that 
the answers out of looking at a lot of data. Um, yes, looking at a lot of data is going to help you. Yes, looking at a lot of data, as long as you remember the golden rule of, you know, causation and correlation are not necessarily the same thing. It's valuable. But again, there's that point at which you step off the edge of the map. You step beyond uh, the data table and you are negotiating areas that are defined, of course, by chance and by risk, but also defined by human experience, human emotion, yours and the emotion and actions that, that others are taking. There, there's, a, there's a diagram, a chart that I try to inject into my teaching uh, when I'm talking about decision-making, foreign policy, and those kinds of things. Uh, and it's basically a, a three-dimensional multi-axis uh, design. You have a, uh, a horizontal axis that starts at one end with ancient history and then goes beyond to the future. Coming down through the middle of that axis is, uh, is another axis that says, okay, right where these two points meet is the crisis, the challenge, the, the danger, the risk, or the aspiration that you're dealing with right now. But all along that axis, there are other things that you are trying to juggle at the same time. And some of them have a direct bearing, you know, factors of economy and resources and timing and those kinds of things. Some of them are just things that crowd your thinking and get in the way, and you're making connections that maybe aren't there, and you're missing con connections that maybe you should. So that's complicating enough. But there's a third axis that kind of punctures through the middle of this. And all the points along that, that, that axis are all the other individuals who are part of that decision, whether they are in the room at that point making the choices or they are the people waiting outside the door saying, OK, as soon as they come out of that door, they're going to tell us what to do and we're going to implement. And they are bound by their fears, by their beliefs, by their past experiences, by their agendas, by their uh, their understanding and grasp of something as basic as uh, as language. And it is not uncommon. There are people who have written on this. Deborah Larson, who's at UCLA and has written about uh, the origins of containment, ha has looked at this very, very effectively using political psychology uh, and pointed out that you can have four or five people in a room making a, an important decision, a critical decision. And at the end of the debate and the discussion, whoever is supposed to record or, or make the final choice says, so we're all agreed, right? Everyone nods their head. We all agree on why this is important. Everyone nods their head. And we all agree with what we should look for next, right? Everyone nods their head. And they go forth. Well, then later they come down that axis a little further into the future. And the leader comes into the room and says, okay, you remember we made that choice two months ago or two years ago? And it was rooted in this foundation and for these reasons. And our, our thinking process was done this way. Clearly, as a result of that, here's what we're going to do now. And someone around that table says, well, wait a minute, that, that's not what I thought was going on two years ago. That's not why I agreed. I agreed for X, Y, and Z. And someone in the other corner of the room says, no, you, you missed it. I agreed for Y, Z, and X. In fact, I found this when I was doing my dissertation research and others, uh, other research on some of the key decisions about Vietnam from the course of 1954 to 1965. And many people, at times, you would have the same people in the room. 
and it would be, we did this in 1954, this is what we must do in 1958. And there would always be people going, wait, we're doing what for why? And you don't understand those things solely by looking at data. You don't understand those things solely by looking at formulas or even this little chart that I've conceived. You do it by having to look into uh, the minds and for lack of a better term, the souls of, uh, of other people. And the most important person you have to be able to look at is yourself. For me, for many people whose opinions I value, for many fantastic leaders I've been privileged to work for, that first person you have to look at is, is yourself. And then use that understanding to look at others. It's hard enough. Humanities yeah. is kind of the gateway for doing that. Be it literature or film or poetry, the classics or whatever. Yeah, the lack of shared understanding that is the result of a meeting or multiple meetings to me is one of the things that's fun and nice about writing code, which is that it doesn't matter what anybody thinks. The computer is dumb enough to do exactly what you tell yeah. it to do. And so it, yeah, it runs. Exactly. Um, but you exactly. can't program people like that, it turns out, um, even if you want to, even if you make your, you know, your laws hundreds of thousands of pages long. But this idea of coming to a shared understanding, again, I want to ask a little bit to follow up on that. So you know this better than I do, but I think it's the case that in the the, the famous Prussian War College, the, the Kriegs Academy, one of the things that they trained you to do, and I think they did this in the, among the officers, was spend a good deal of time speaking candidly with your superiors. I think that was mm -hmm. part of what it was important to do. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. um, in my limited experience, again, in, in my own management positions, um, and as a teacher, it is quite hard to get people to speak candidly, especially as they get older, because they realize they have a lot to lose yeah. or something like that. Yeah. As a leader, um, to generate true shared understanding that you're talking about is so hard to do, does require yourself and require other people to open up and to take risks, therefore. Is yeah. there, how do you do that? It's, that's not just a matter of understanding, right? That's something else. Right, right. That, that, uh, that's something that has to be developed over time. The, the ability to walk into the room and say, okay, I've just taken command here. Somebody tell me what the situation is. The, the tendency is going to be, here's what this new commander needs to hear. Here's what this new commander must hear from my point of view, as opposed to a very candid assessment. That kind of trust is built up in an organization over time, which is why uh, the practice of leadership and developing the skills of leadership uh, is something that is, that is constant. And, and it is a challenge to organizations. I mean, apropos of what you were just talking about, uh, there's been a big push at various times in recent years in the military, particularly within the army, the, the corner of the, of the military I know best, uh, to have what's called 360 degree uh, evaluation and feedback, where not only is the boss evaluating and rank ordering uh, and, and putting forth future development assignments and, and imperatives for the subordinates, but the subordinates are coming back and, and saying, here's what worked in this organization and here's what did not. Here's what we understood and here's what we didn't understand. Or here's where we're absolutely sure we understand and the leader hearing it candidly spoken goes, oh man, if that's what you understand, we're in real trouble. That's very difficult to do. It's hard to do in hierarchical organizations. It's hard to do in organizations where the emphasis is on being prepared to instantly act in a situation of, of high risk and have to trust uh, the, the guidance and the directives of those uh, at, at a higher level. But part of that is something that you have to do uh, over time. 
okay, I am telling you right now, we must do this. You must take that squad and move down that valley in, in this direction, and you must attack at this point. Well, you're not necessarily going to trust me because I just walked in and told you that. Uh, you're going to trust me because we have built up a degree of respect and understanding over time. And you understand the mission and the risks that you've accepted. And you understand that I have to take on uh, some of those risks and I have to make some choices that may not necessarily be good for you, but they may be good for, for the important longer chain term thing you're going to be achieved, uh, you're trying to achieve. I had a, a, a good friend and a, a former colleague, we were lieutenants uh, together and, and he went on to become a four-star general and, and one of the greatest leaders I've known. And he worked for another individual who went on to become a general uh, that I had not worked for and but knew about. And some of us were talking and saying, you know, what kind of, what was his leadership style? Uh, what did you think about working for him? And he said, yeah, this was somebody who was really good. I knew that if we had to go to war, I might get killed, but at least it would be for an important reason. That's a, that's a pretty stark statement to have to make, uh, but it certainly um, indicates a high level of self-awareness and an awareness of what it is you're trying to achieve, that you've accepted your circumstances and the, and the mission you're in, uh, much like Nixius when, uh, you know, Alcibiades goes over the wall and, okay, you were the one who argued and argued and argued that we should not go to Sicily. Guess what? It's your turn. You're the one that's going to lead this mission to, uh, to Sicily. And, and having an awareness of what it is that, well, for one term that is sometimes used when you're talking about the relationship between civilian leadership and military leadership is this idea of deference, even though you know that there is an inherent sacrifice, sometimes the actual, the, the ultimate sacrifice in, in making that deference. That's certainly a point that comes out of uh, Thucydides in a number of different places, but it also talks to a lot of the things that, that Thucydides and other classic authors illustrate that are the those dangerous things to watch out for. If there's one thing the classic authors had a corner on the market on, it was writing about hubris. And uh, hubris is certainly at the center of a, a lot of what happened as the Athenian debates evolved over the course of the war. Uh, it, in my view, at least, it's not a coincidence that you go right from the Melian dialogue and the choices that were made there to saying, okay, well, now I think we should go to Sicily. I think we should fight the Syracusans. The, there's a correlation uh, as you go along. And there's also reason why in that, in that painfully beautiful passage uh, where Thucydides talks about how at first when the word began to come back to Athens, the, no one believed it. No one believed that they'd been defeated in Sicily. And even when the very few survivors came back and said, I was there, look at these wounds, look at these scars. Nah, that's not what happened. And then when they reached the point where they could no longer pretend uh, that it didn't happen, the, uh, the, the answer was to point at everyone else for making the choice and not accepting their responsibilities and and the choices that they had made 
and in many cases, enthusiastically and eagerly supported. You know, say what you will about Alciabides, who is why there hasn't been a movie or at least a miniseries about him is beyond me. But uh, dude had a lot of faults, but uh, he was certainly self-aware. And one of the points that comes out of reading Thucydides, uh, and one of the things that you see again and again in Greek theater, for example, is this uh, this uh, failure, these failures of leadership because of a lack of self-awareness, because of a lack of, not because you couldn't reach perfection, but because you believed you could reach perfection and because you convinced yourself you had reached a certain level of perfection. And, and that's when the gods on Olympus say, ha, and, um, and do what Greek gods are so good at doing, which is ruining your day and, uh, and pointing out what a fool you actually are just because you believe, no, I'm not a fool and there's no chance I ever will be. Yeah, this is this is strikingly true in, in Greek literature and thought, of course, despite the fact that Greeks are also extremely explicitly obsessed with being best. So mm -hmm. uh, knowing that you have limits is in no way contradictory to yeah. desiring yeah. as much as possible extreme excellence. Yeah. And Thucydides, yeah. of course, you know, he's he writes this great work, but he's also a failed general, right? He's a failed strategist, which he talks about uh, briefly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Hey, I screwed up. Um, yeah. You know, I'm here in exile. Lucky I wasn't killed. So uh, that just happened. Uh, what was yeah. that all about? Maybe I'll start asking around and writing and and being attuned to that. And, and to go back to our book, that's that's kind of an underlying theme as uh, as well. The 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 flaw in using history is not solved, or the flaw that that is misusing history is not solved by avoiding reading or understanding history or, or understanding these, uh, trying to understand these kinds of accounts. The flaws in, in misunderstanding them and in, in attempting to take them at however you have interpreted them, which is inevitably going to be filtered through the analogies that come quickest to your mind. Clausewitz talks about this, that, that the, the average individual looks at an event or circumstance and and grasp at the 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 tallest most visible point that's familiar and acceptable to them and then acts on that and they don't take the time and they don't care to take the time to get below the surface and to see what really really is going on the the first imperative in in Clausewitz's on war for a commander is to understand fully the nature of the conflict that they are uh, they find themselves engaged in and like Thucydides, that's uh, that's something that's often missed in those who read the text. Uh, in in Thucydides, people look for the formulas, they look for the analogies, they look for the 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 traps that uh, are not necessarily there. They look to the analogies uh, to their current life or their current strategic challenge, or as a way to explain uh, the painful and tragic events that maybe they were a part of, uh, rather than trying to step back from that and try and look at a broader uh, context in a broader, broader sense and maybe add to and contribute to the knowledge that comes from Thucydides and others so that future leaders have um, a, a firmer foundation to stand on when they have to make those kinds of choices. And it's never going to be perfect. Right, uh, but I, as you say, if you don't end up trying to, if you don't know yourself enough to go beyond yourself, you don't get over yourself either. Oh, the, I, yeah. I think of it. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. It becomes like that, uh, that analogy that 
the, the story that I always remember hearing in like eighth grade science, you know, the two lines in space that are converging, but they never quite touch. Right. There's always going to be that gap. And the, the, the problem comes when you take Thucydides or anyone and, and believe that this is the end point. All we got to do is put this on a three by five card, laminate it and put it in our wallet and pull it out whenever we need it. Yeah, and that, that, not. that that's not the way to that's not the way this game is played yeah so that we kind of came full circle and i'm glad because we actually are out of time um right now um so um thanks very much um for this conversation that was my I need pleasure. To talk about sicilian expedition with you and andrew because it came up quite a bit at some point mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um i'd love to do that is there anything uh, you'd like to leave our uh listeners with as a, just a final note or um further reading besides your book well yes obviously please buy our book we had the uh, the misfortune to have the book released like two days before we all locked down so book talks um we were going to launch the book at the international studies association annual conference well that never happened so uh that's why we appreciate very much opportunities like this but uh, in, in general I, i'm not necessarily going to name a specific book or or movie or work of art or history uh, to go back and study. But what I am going to urge people to do is take those books, those writings, those uh, works of literature uh, that you feel really have shaped and framed the way you think and the way you approach uh, the problems and challenges in leadership and go back and read it again and go back and reassess how you framed your response to that. How is it different now than when you read it at 15 or 20 or 25? How is it that you saw this as a response to the Cold War? And what does that mean now that the Cold War is long gone? Uh, go back and reread, go back and rethink. Uh, that's what we urge people to do in our book. We're not saying here is the interpretation you should use versus the other. What we're saying is how, here's how you should approach uh, the interpretation of this or any other work. It sounds perfect, especially for me as a classicist, rereading for a hundredth time is great. Well, thank yeah. you very much. My we pleasure. Thank you. In addition to this week's guest, the Leading Thinkers podcast would like to thank Eric Shimalonis, Aisha Champagne, and Malaron Hodge. For more information, please visit Kallion.org. That's K-A-L-L-I-O-N.org. Thanks for listening.